You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We certainly appreciate being included as a part of your day as you try to navigate these markets and this ag environment such as it is. We're going to talk through some of the issues impacting our industry today. We're going to dig into what's happening with Assembly Bill 5 over in California. This is the rule that changed the way truckers are categorized as employees. The fight against it continues. We'll talk with our friends at the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association in Segment 2 about that. And in segment three, we're going to talk about what could be coming from an export front. There's a new push to get some trade authority granted to this administration. We'll see if it can make it to the end. And finally, we're going to close the show with a conversation about the weather with our friend Greg Soulier from This Week in Agribusiness. Before we get into all of that, however, we are going to take a look at these markets with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, anytime, Mike. Let's talk about what's moving here in the markets, Dwayne. As I look at the uh, the Chicago Board of Trade today, it seems that wheat's the only thing with any wind beneath, beneath its wings. What's going on there? <laughs> yeah, a little bit of pop in wheat. It's kind of different to say that Kansas City wheat is leading markets higher, but it is this morning. You know, a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but some decent snow cover in parts of the Southern Plains, but some talk this morning about the Western part of the Southern Plains missed out on it. And with the cold weather coming, there could be some winter kill damage happening there. I also kind of just feel like maybe wheat has just been beat up enough. Maybe we're going to try to find a seasonal low in here and maybe it's around that $8 for Kansas city. Um, you know, hopefully Chicago is close to low too. In Minneapolis, I've been pointing out to a few people after the January report, we'll need to compete to, not lose any acres this spring. So, you know, we're a little ways away from spring where I feel like I can get a little bullish the wheat market again. But, uh, you know, it's a futures market. We're always looking forward. So maybe we're putting in a decent low here in wheat. That would be good news there for those wheat growers across the country. Dwayne, this strength in the wheat market noticeably not transferring over like it did yesterday to the corn market. Corn off slightly on the day. Anything there driving that uh, divergence? Hey, kind of an odd day so far. You know, yeah, corn has looked very strong the last week, and I really like that market. I mean, we obviously learned that we lost 833 million bushels year over year right now, so obviously the end users are going to be in there to buy. Um, It's been strong before, but yeah, today is kind of a little odd, like it's a little bit of a sell-off. There's probably some spread unwinding going on between wheat, corn, and soybeans all together, because all the trades are a little odd this morning, but Back to the whole end users buying corn. It, before the Gen report, it seemed like under 650 commercials would step in and buy the board. Maybe they couldn't get the cash corn, but they were darn sure going to buy the board below 650. Maybe that new price level is, is 675. I mean, we'll we'll learn moving forward, but it's kind of starting to act that way that this market should have good support underneath it. Even even with bigger crops in Brazil coming, that doesn't increase the supply in northwest Iowa, of course. It doesn't. And even though it eventually could, of course, if those bushels were to make their way up here, it's going to take some time. And Dwayne, to that end, what have you seen or heard out in the countryside with regard to basis? 
I basis is firm. It's strong. And I'm happy it is because I'm also hearing a ton of farmer selling here the month of January so far. And and even though I've been kind of the, the bull out there and, and bullish these markets going into spring thinking there'll be an acreage battle, I can't stop anyone from selling this and taking these profits. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with that. They're great prices. So I'm getting a lot of guys calling in saying, you know, hey, not sure what to have the hired men do in the shop. Is it all right if we keep the grain moving and sell some? Absolutely at these price levels. So impressed that the basis is staying strong, even though we are getting some grain moving. We are, Dwayne. What are you seeing on the soybean side cash? Anything moving in the countryside? Uh, kind of the same deal. Um, up here, you get to the northern plains. We've always been in a a pattern of selling the beans early and storing the corn. But it's shifting a little bit as we get more uh, processing plants up this way so guys are holding beans a little bit more but the same deal they got into january and this price is hard to continue to hold the basis is firmed up enough so it's a price that it justified storing it so same deal more guys selling but there'll be a decent amount they're just gonna wait like myself for spring and summer and kind of wonder what bullish thing could happen but we're gonna need a weather scare or something in spring if you're storing and ignoring these nice, already high prices. <laughs> well, that's the thing, Dwayne. We, we are going to need a new bull story. The bull story we've been talking about in the soybean market has been this drought in Argentina. Of course, it continues, but Brazilian farmers are getting that crop off. Does it still look like that tonnage in Brazil is growing? Hey, maybe not growing anymore because we, with the Brazil, we always forecast this record crop first and then trim it off if there's any problems. So they're still right up near that record crop. But you're right, man, Argentina's getting some really nice rains now. A little shocked that our soybean market didn't crash all the way to 1465 right away this week. And, and today, like I said, a little bit of an odd day. Soybeans were down overnight. Now they're up four or five cents and looking stronger. So I'm not going to put too much stock in the up move right now. But, you know, there again, too, we've got to remember our supplies are still very tight. So... Uh, we can't just fall apart and watch export demand increase either for soybeans, which has been solid. We had more sales flashes this morning. So, uh, yes, the future doesn't look that good because South America is going to have a big crop, but that didn't increase our old crop size. So that that's what still remains. And my bullish thing that I'm hanging my hat on, I guess. <laughs> well, you've got that bullish spin, but Dwayne, you also threw out a number there, 1465. Is that what you're targeting in this old crop march as some support level in the in the charts? I, ever since about harvest, I actually kind of pointed to that 1550 area, and <laughs> I'm bringing that up because last week it went to uh, 1548 and then went the other way, and sometimes that makes you go, oh, shoot, I'm going to miss it by two cents. I'm still hanging on fairly tight, thinking that our export demand is pretty good, so I'm still going to say that 15-plus area, but like I said before, if anyone calls and wants to sell it here, I have no problem with that. We can always buy it back if we have problems getting this crop planted in the spring, and that's it. I, I, it's hard to go through a growing season in the northern hemisphere anymore without some issues in the social media making a big deal out of a drought or delayed planting somewhere in the U.S., and I, I think that could make for a significant rally. That is a great point. Dwayne, you have been a bull for the past several months on the cattle front. Of course, we had Friday's Cattle on Feed report. Did that change your outlook here in the cattle sector? No, I mean, the cattle and feed report was was good for the bulls. Anytime you have placements down 8% year over year, I don't know how you can't be a little bit bullish. However, the trade action sure hasn't been the best, has it? And, and slaughter numbers are higher than anticipated. I don't know if that's because feedlot conditions aren't the best and guys are just trying to push and move it. But yeah, cash cattle were down last week to 155. So a little negative swoon here, but I, I'm still bullish. I 
I just don't know if I can slam my fist and say we're, we're going to make all-time new highs and be 175 fat cattle. But you and I, we finally got it to the 160. I'm happy there. But uh, I think we can make new highs again. But 163, 164 in April is, is probably time to start hedging. And, hey, look out to next year. Uh, feeder cattle, 210, 212 for next year. For guys selling their calves now, if they like today's price, they, sh- they should really look out to next year and do something. And in the feeder market, as thinly traded as it is, still worth the risk to manage that on the board? Um, <laughs> you better ask your banker if that's okay, too. Uh, the other tool that is out there is LRP insurance through your crop insurance agents. That's a, that's a good way to do it, too. You don't have to pay for that put option premium until expiration of the contract. So honestly, I've been pushing that more than the brokerage side on guys. That's a great point, folks. If you've never looked into LRP, do be sure to do that. We've been speaking, of course, with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, anytime, Mike. Have a good day. And folks, stick around. We'll talk some policy when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I've been farming my whole life. I don't need somebody to come out here and state the obvious. I don't need anybody to explain my farm to me. My local co-op works with CHS, and they know what I need when I need it. A global network of support. Local expertise. And valuable market options. We need a co-op that's here for us. So we can own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. Heading to NCBA in New Orleans? February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 1230 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the U.S. MEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half 
don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us today. And as we think back to the 2022, one of the challenges that just kept coming up time and time again were the hangups in the supply chain. We didn't have enough workers on the railroads across the country. We didn't have enough water in the Mississippi. And America's truckers were confronting all sorts of new challenges, not least of which was a change in policy in the state of California. Assembly Bill Number 5 changed the way truck employees are categorized, and the fight against it continues. Joining us now for an update is Bryce Mongett. He's the Director of Legislative Affairs at the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, or OIDA. And Bryce, thanks for joining us today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, it has been a while since we talked about Assembly Bill 5. It generated some protests at the ports last fall in 2022. But for listeners who maybe haven't been plugged into it, Bryce, remind us, what is AB 5 and how does it impact the trucking industry? Yeah, so AB 5 is a relatively new worker classification law for the state of California. And what it did was really turned employee and independent contractor classification on its head. So what AB5 is, is that it, it assumes every worker is an employee unless, um, you know, that work can meet all three prongs of what's called the ABC test. Um, and uh, what's most problematic about that ABC test is that uh, basically you have to be doing work that's outside the, the course of business for the person you're working for. So in trucking, uh, it's really difficult to kind of wrap our heads around how someone could be an independent contractor if they're performing trucking services or you know trucking transportation activities for a trucking company. Uh, and so what that's left us with is it seemingly AB5 uh, as a result of the ABC test would mean uh, independent owner operators, independent contractors would have to be classified under as employees under this law. So. That's as quickly and as briefly as I can kind of explain the law. And it's, you know, it's confusing for us when we're trying to follow it day in and day out. So I, I really sympathize for anyone who's trying to keep track of this with how many, how, how many times this has gone back and forth. Absolutely. I mean, it is it is truly changing the, the nature of the game for these independent mm-hmm. drivers in California. And given that's who OIDA works with, Bryce, mm-hmm. what have what have you heard from from either truckers who have now had to sign up as employees or as trucking companies? How are they handling this? Did they just find a way through? Yeah, it's really all over the board. And that's in part because we just don't know how the state is truly going to enforce this. So I um, you know, some of our uh, members have reported that they've been encouraged to to move out of state, uh, maybe to move their business organization to organize their business out of the state. Some are maybe looking at be, becoming employees or maybe even moving uh, to a two-check system like we've seen in the past where they, you know, lease their equipment to the carrier but operate as an employee 
for the carrier. Um, so it, it's, it's really all over the board. And again, that's because the state of California, um, <laughs> the most recent, at least the update that they've given us more or less is that uh, while these court proceedings are going on and legal challenges are going on, they said they're going to use both the old employee classification test and the new ABC test for uh, for any classification matters that, that come up before the state. So it's kind of we're we are truly left scratching our heads um, as far as what would be a workable solution for this. And Bryce, one of the solutions you mentioned there was moving out of state. And I heard that from a lot of folks as AB5 was being discussed in 2022. But now as 2023 gets started, I understand moving out of state might not even be a solution. Oida's working with a trucking firm in Texas who is now suing for relief under AB5. Can you tell us a little bit about how this injunction would work and what's caused it? Yeah, exactly. And so uh, what we are looking for is an injunction to prevent the enforcement of AB5, uh, basically to ensure that truckers who are uh, out of based out of state or operating out of state or only operating through uh, or in parts of California to ensure that AB5 is not enforced against them. And what we're arguing is that it is the um, United States Constitution and the federal government that has the ultimate authority to set these laws that affect interstate commerce. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear why, why it's a good idea to have one, uh, more or less one set of laws that, that regulates uh, commerce between states because you don't want states erecting barriers to make it more difficult, uh, to make it more expensive or just unworkable to, to have interstate commerce. And really what California has done with AB5 is made it seemingly impossible for for owner-operators to operate as independent contractors if they want to basically set foot in California. So our argument is that that violates the, the U.S. Constitution. And, uh, you know, the, our, our member in Texas is just one example of, uh, of how our membership is being affected, but it's a concrete example. And that's why we're arguing and asking the state to halt enforcement because uh, our members and, and truckers across the country are facing real harms already and even more potential harm because you know, I think that's, that's something that just gets lost in this for some people is that, uh, you know, if you're a one truck operation, if you have to make a decision about where you're going to shut down or what kind of loads uh, you're going to run or where you're going to run them or what are my financial risks if I violate this law, it, it will put you out of business, potentially, potentially ruin your livelihood. So uh, there's just so much at stake here, and that's what we're, we're presenting to the court. Okay, so now I want to come back to the question to the court, Bryce, because this AB5, this is a huge issue. Deciding whether or not it impacts independent drivers from outside California is vital. Mm -hmm. When this injunction goes before the court, is the question, is AB5 constitutional, yay or nay? Or is the question, does AB5, we're going to let it exist, does it apply to drivers from other states? So it's kind of both right now as we've, uh, we've presented it to the court. And really at the stage that we're at right now is for up for the court to make a preliminary injunction. So I, I, it, gets, it gets so difficult to track exactly where this is in the process. But uh, and that's the frustration is it's seemingly that these, these issues are, are never done and there's always a chance for this to, to rear its head again. But right now we're really asking the, the court to determine and we're, we're arguing that there's enough potential harm here uh, for for truckers and independent contractors and we've presented enough evidence that this violates the you know the u.s constitution's interstate commerce clause 
that they should put a the court should put a hold on California enforcing this until you know the full merits of this or I don't want to say full merits but the full case is argued all the way through so uh, you know we're at that preliminary stage where we're just saying hey there's certainly enough here where the court should stop this to prevent any harm against uh, against truckers because it, we're pretty sure that when this is ultimately decided it will be decided in our favor so that decision, where do things stand now? Of course, this injunction was just filed. The court system, as you mentioned, Bryce, yep. not the, the picture of lightning fast movement. When do you expect to see some progress on this injunction? So previously, you know, we're, we're still kind of watching the court schedule. Um, we're waiting for the state to file uh, its response, um, kind of to the, the file its response in the broader uh, challenge and the broader trial that's going on sometime in March. And the hearing for the preliminary injunction is scheduled for May. So, you know, it's <laughs> I keep having to check what year it is <laughs> uh, when, when we're talking about this, because between, you know, all the upheaval of the last few years and how long this took to go into effect, it's hard to believe that this has been, you know, going on for so long now. But uh, but the fight against it continues. It does indeed. Folks, five years, this AB5 battle has been brewing in one form or another. We're talking with Bryce Mongen here of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association. And Bryce, as you look out to other federal actions coming this year, are there other issues for truckers that uh, we need to be aware of? Yeah, so the big one that we're keeping an eye on is speed limiters and a speed limiter mandate coming from FMCSA. Uh, basically, FMCSA has already issued their like preliminary rulemaking on this, and we're expecting the next step in their proposed rulemaking to come out sometime in the spring, possibly June. But basically, what FMCSA has proposed is a one-size-fits-all speed limiter mandate for all trucks across the country. Uh, and that's a big deal for our members, uh, just safety concerns first and foremost, but also, uh, you know, for their businesses. Uh, they know they can, if they don't use a speed limiter, they can operate safely at the posted speed limit. So a speed limiter that would be set below that would, um, uh, you know, take that away from them. And, and the, especially what we're pointing to and talking to other associations here on that we work with on uh, in D.C. is that, this is for all commercial vehicles over 26,000 pounds. So sometimes when lawmakers especially think speed limiters and think, oh, we're regulating trucking, they think, you know, we're just going to regulate all the tractor trailers out on the road. But it's not just that. It is any, you know, commercial motor vehicle. So especially, you know, for your listeners, ag or many other industries, uh, it's something they need to watch out for. Absolutely, folks. I'm thinking a lot of you tuning in have vehicles that tip the scales at a weight heavier than that. This yep. issue is worth paying attention to. We've been talking with Bryce Monge, Director of Legislative Affairs at Awida. Bryce, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thank you. And folks, stay with us. We're going to talk Trade Promotion Authority here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up as a farmer i want a cooperative that's there for me not the other way around a local co-op that works for me and works with chs to connect me with local experts i know and trust and put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips a co-op that's here to help us own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. 
heading to MCBA in New Orleans? February's monthly grind is taking place live on the showroom floor on Wednesday, February 1st from 9 to 10 a.m. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Also, on Thursday at 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, I'll be facilitating NCGA's panel discussion with special guests from the USMEF and Port of New Orleans on what you need to know about the value of trade and exports to your operation. We'll see you in New Orleans. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's get caught up with what's happening in this market trade on this Wednesday. We see that soybeans did start under pressure, have since climbed their way back to a little bit of positive territory here. A little bit of buying in bean meal, corn hovering right around that unchanged mark, and wheat futures trading moderately higher as we work through the morning action with mixed to lower trade being seen in livestock. Now, in the case of soybeans, overnight, we saw March beans test support at the 50-day moving average as we're probing the bottom of an ascending channel on the charts that has contained prices the past several months. Are we maybe finding some buying support here now that we're hitting the bottom of this channel? That remains to be seen. Of course, we still have drought issues in Argentina. Brazil has started harvest of a massive soybean crop as well. That's all weighing on the soy complex overall. The wheat side, not a whole lot there as far as a big market moving story. There is a large short position built in though here with fund managers in the wheat market. So Maybe a little bit of uh, concern there if something were to happen to trigger short covering. So we're watching wheat closely. Meantime, corn caught in the middle as uh, global stocks remain tight. A short Argentine crop making things even tighter. So overall, just watching some of the same fundamentals in this market. Going to be watching money flows here closely. We do have a slew of economic data out uh, here today with more earnings reports and more economic reports Thursday and Friday. That could definitely have an impact here on the markets. Meantime, in livestock, hogs trying to find some support here down around a, uh, a bottom maybe in this market. Still not finding it, though, down moderately as we work through the trade while cattle futures are lightly mixed. Crude oil, that's down a little bit here, down about 30 cents with the stock market under a little bit of pressure as well. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to AOA. Thanks for joining us today. Over the past couple of weeks, we have seen some important moves in the world of agricultural trade. We've seen two key positions, one at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, one at the USDA, be filled, hopefully be able to provide a better voice for American agriculture as the year goes on. But we've also seen some trade issues pop up, notably Mexico looking to ban the importation of U.S. GMO corn. We're going to be talking about that on Friday's show with Tom Haig, president of the National Association of Corn Growers. But today we're going to bring the focus back to trade. One thing we have not seen in a number of years is a new free trade agreement. Well, there's a push out there to return some power to the administration in order to help get some free trade deals done. Joining us now to discuss it is Luke Lindbergh. He's previously served as the chief of staff for the Export-Import Bank, currently works on behalf of South Dakotans in order to get their goods exported. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about the authority that you think we need in order to get some more trade through. Trade Promotion Authority. Luke, it has been a long time since we've discussed TPA in the world of agriculture. Remind us, if you would, what does it mean and what sort of power does it grant the administration? Yeah, Mike, it essentially... Uh, offers the administration the tools it needs to get out and negotiate trade agreements on behalf of the American government. What it does is it, it's it's also called fast track promotion authority, and it essentially allows the U.S. trade representative to go negotiate agreements, put them all together, and then bring them to Congress for one vote at the end of the day uh, to approve the whole package, thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's uh, it, it really is where most of our recent free trade agreements have begun because it takes a lot of the, the process out of the way that Congress, you know, oftentimes wants to meddle in creating the agreements uh, and allows the U.S. trade representative to, to have the ability to do that on their own. Now, is, is it, in your opinion, as you look out uh, to the administration that's in power now, can a political consensus come together to give the Biden administration this sort of authority? I think that the politics are there in Congress, definitely. You'll, you'll, I think you'll start to see this uh, in the next couple of months here, a, a group of Republicans start to push to see TPA reinstated. I think there's a number of uh, Democrats that would also be interested in seeing that, particularly from ag-related states uh, and states that produce large goods and services that get exported overseas. Uh, so I, I think there's a bipartisan consensus for it. What we are unclear of today is whether or not the administration wants trade promotion authority. Uh, many folks in Congress have been saying that they've been waiting for the call from Ambassador Tai at the U.S. Trade Representative's office to, in fact, ask for this authority, which she has not yet done. And so I think you'll see a push in Congress, but the question is whether the administration is willing to answer the call. Can Congress push it through, Luke, even if the administration isn't pushing through it? Is this something we can encourage from a grassroots level, or do we need the USTR to start the process? Typically, USTR is the one that starts the process on this. Congress could, in fact, approve TPA, uh, unlikely to get a lot of Democratic support if, if the administration's not asking for it. But, but in theory, they could actually move it forward without a request from the U.S. Trade Representative or President Biden. Uh, but then it comes down to whether or not the U.S. Trade Representative will subsequently utilize trade promotion authority once they have it. 
Oh, that's a good point. Just because it's there doesn't mean they have to use it. And I'm wondering, Luke, with TPA in the past, how long has it been since we had trade promotion authority for a presidential administration? Yeah, the last time it expired in, in 2019, and it was uh, the last agreement we had done was the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement under a trade promotion authority, which, as you recall, did pass with large bipartisan uh, majority in, in, in Congress and subsequently get signed into place by President Trump. Uh, so we've been without this for a number of years, and, and several free trade agreements have fallen through that could have potentially uh, been worked on. We, when, I, when I was in the Trump administration, we were working on agreements with Kenya and the UK, for example. Uh, neither of those agreements have been pursued by the current administration. All right. So we're seeing that slowdown. It's not just on ag issues. It's on all export issues. And Luke, when I think of the politics of free trade, there always seems to be a coterie of senators and representatives who believe in free trade and support it. But there also has been a kind of bipartisan coalition of folks who want to put America first, keep other goods outside of our borders. In your recent editorial, you outlined one of the geopolitical risks that could recalibrate things, and that's China. How do both parties need to think about China in the context of trade looking forward? China is both one of our largest and most important trading partners, as well as our largest and most important adversary at the moment. And that puts it in a particularly precarious position uh, in a number of fronts. And the way I've been talking about this a lot, Mike, is is velocity matters on some of these issues. We need to quickly and rapidly remove our dependence on China for things like semiconductor production. Um, for other national security related matters that are, are really, uh, you know, heavily intertwined in the defense sector. That we need to, to, to rapidly to, to remove our, our dependence on China for those components. When it comes to agriculture, uh, we, we need to sort of, I, I advocate for a slower velocity shift away. And part of it is that China is actually starting to buy more and more goods and look to source more and more agriculture products from other countries, but it's a, it's a slower shift, right? Because it's not an easy thing to start to find those products in places that are not grown in the United States. And so I think we need to match their shift and, and begin to push more aggressively to find new markets where our producers and our farmers uh, and ranchers can really find uh, places to sell their goods that are going to be long-term sustainable, assuming that the, the divide continues, this sort of decoupling that's happening between China and the U.S. right now. It's a good point. It's it's a reminder, I think, when we were working with Russia back in the 1970s, they were buying up the bulk of grain. China buying up so many uh, agricultural products, they become uh, one basket with all of our eggs. It's always good to diversify that. Luke, you now work with South Dakota and promoting exports out of South Dakota. Bring it back home for us, if you would. How do you see exports from middle America, be it South Dakota or other states across the heartland? How could TPA bring some more dollars back to our producers? You know, I, I think things like, uh, it's a great question, Mike. Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what are those markets where we're going to have resilient buyers for a long haul, and how do we begin to build relationships with those countries that will be interested in buying our products, and we can develop, uh, you know, relationships. There's this great term out there right now called, you know, friend shoring, which is the idea that we're creating partnerships with countries that are like-minded to us, uh, where we want to do business in international trade with countries that we know will, will likely be part of our coalition of, of democratic governance uh, across the globe. 
And so I look at a country like the UK, where previously as part of the EU, you know, they struggled with some of the GMO, uh, you know, labeling and things and willingness to buy GMO products. Now there's been a, a Brexit that's occurred and all of a sudden the UK market is a little more friendly and open to exploring uh, taking South Dakota corn uh, that might be genetically modified into its shores. And so I think we need to be focused on places like that where there's an open window and a real desire and honestly a long-term uh, successful partnership. We've always had a very special relationship with the UK and I, I think things like countries like that would be a, a great target for us to, to make sure we can get our soybeans and our corn and our beef and pork and dairy uh, intertwined in their, uh, their supply chain. Luke, we've been talking about the potential of a UK free trade agreement since Brexit happened. Uh, have you talked to this administration? Have we made any progress on a free trade agreement with them? Unfortunately, we have not. Uh, I've had num- a number of conversations uh, just this past August. We actually hosted the head of the UK trade delegation uh, at the Washington, at the embassy in Washington here in South Dakota to talk about a potential agreement. I know the UK side is very excited and interested. You've seen them start to sign uh, MOUs, memorandums of understandings directly with certain states like South Carolina and North Carolina to try to break free the log jam. But uh, to my knowledge and understanding and all the conversations I've had in Washington, uh, the current administration has not put forth a defined strategy on, on getting the UK free trade deal back and up on operational again, or, or at least discussed for negotiation. All right. So many places. We'd love to see some movement here while this iron is hot. Luke, before we let you go, you are in the world of trade. It's something you think about in particular from the context of, of middle America, of South Dakota. I'm wondering what would be your dream free trade agreement? What's an agreement that you think would bring the most home for South Dakota growers? What country out there other than uh, the UK, perhaps? Sure. Um, yeah, you, you know, for me, I've always felt like we've been missing uh, a lot of focus on South America. You know, they, they do grow quite a bit down there themselves. And oftentimes we see them as a competitor in the agricultural space. At the same time, there are growing populations there. Uh, and I think there are opportunities where we can pr- produce uh, complementary goods as opposed to necessarily competitive goods. So I would say something in, in South America would be really attractive. The, 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 the area that, to me, provides the most promise but is the hardest nut to crack is Africa. Uh, they're going to double their population, I think, by 2050, very young, up-and-coming uh, continent in terms of their buying power and what they need to sustain themselves. I think that's the largest opportunity that's untapped. Um, but it, it certainly is a challenging one to break into and and uh, piece together an, an appropriate agreement that allows uh, it all to come together and be successful. Absolutely. That opportunity and optimism in Africa is out there. It'll be neat to see that develop over the coming years, folks. We have been talking with Luke Lindbergh, former chief of staff at the XM Bank. And Luke, thanks for joining us today. Mike, pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for having me. And folks, stay with us. We'll talk weather when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.
The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. A lot of you folks across the countryside are going to notice in the next couple of days, or perhaps you're noticing today, temperatures are cooling off. It's time to talk weather a little bit. We're going to get an update from meteorologist Greg Solia. You can hear him each weekend on This Week in Agribusiness. And Greg, how far is this cold spell going to spread? Well, uh, with time there, uh, Mike, and it will take probably a couple of two or three days to get it firmly ensconced. First, obviously, through the southern Canadian prairie, much of the Canadian prairie, the upper Midwest, northern central plains, western Corn Belt. That'll be for openers. And uh, we'll just sort of let the Arctic air kind of slowly at times seep into parts of the central and southern Corn Belt out of the southern plains. But by and large, once we lock into it, and again, it may take two or three systems to pass on by, it will be a multi-week setup here, some ebbing and flowing of temperatures, but it looks like, again, much of our uh, area here through the Dakotas, Nebraska, Minnesota, Wisconsin, back through Big Sky and Wyoming will be uh, locked into a pretty good cold wave weather pattern. Have had a little snippet of this stuff here from time to time. Don't think it'll be as dominant early on as what we had here back, say, in December towards and just before Christmas, but it will, with time, build its way as we get through the waning days of January, beginning part of February. And again, had a little snippet of it this morning. Morning into parts of the Red River Valley of the north. They were down close to zero this morning. Another round of light snow across the underhead of Minnesota. Snows will pick up through Minnesota, the western reaches of Wisconsin. There's almost two feet on the ground there. And once you go westward through around the Bismarck area, snow pack and snow cover is easing up a little bit. It's basically been eroded away around the Black Hills and western part of South Dakota. But Wind comes in with one of these uh, Alberta Clippers, Saskatchewan Screamers, and that will deliver the first initial punch of this Arctic air. But heads up out through Big Sky, for example, there's high wind watches out towards and around the Bile City in Glasgow. They'll hit 50 to 60 miles per hour, 30 to 40 mile an hour winds over the Dakotas, the Northern Plains, Upper Midwest. But thank goodness, I think most of this snow cover snowpack has been really compacted and iced on down. So hopefully not any of this ground blizzard stuff we have to contend with. But there's a little more snow again back in the forecast for parts of the Dakotas, the upper Midwest, Red River Valley over the next couple of two or three days. Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. And run us through again the timing for that snow. When do you see it really kicking off there across the Dakotas and how far south is it going to spread? It'll be kind of a quick band of initially maybe one to three, two to four, something in that. So not a real big deal. But again, there'll be a healthy south wind associated with it. 
and uh, we anticipate some of that to get going across the western half of the Dakotas uh, later on this afternoon, more so tonight than tomorrow morning, spread its way uh, into the Missouri Valley and towards about the Red River sometime later tomorrow night. First thing here by the time we get into the Minnesota, uh, uh, Wisconsin border country uh, towards about Friday. But again, not a lot of snow, but some of that getting blown around itself on these strong winds and on its backside initially before the Arctic air settles in, even a little mixed moisture for uh, parts of the western Dakotas, Montana, and then through Wyoming. So some spots will see the snow cover come up. Some of it will see come on down. Some of it getting blown around here with that new weather system. But it's all academic because we do build into a pretty good shot and probably piece of uh, Arctic air to start off the weekend. And uh, yeah, down sub-zero again over much of the Dakotas, Minnesota, maybe some spots 5, 10, 15, 20 degrees below zero as you get up towards border country and points on north route from there. That's just the initial piece here over the uh, front part of the upcoming weekend. All right. We'll watch for that up north, Greg. It has been active on the south as well. Our listeners across Missouri, I've heard reports from three to as much as more than six inches of snow across some of those those southern areas. What's that storm doing today? I understand it's moving its way towards the eastern seaboard. Exactly. Yeah, they've already had two, at least this will be the second of two uh, snowmakers for the northeast of New England. That snow area, by the way, does go as far south and southwest as uh, parts of West Texas, cotton country, the Oklahoma panhandle. Matter of fact, it's the first moisture they've seen around the Amarillo area since about mid-December. And some of those folks have picked up three inches. That's a big deal. That's actually water equivalent moisture that would go in comparable to maybe a, a half inch downpour of rain. Some spots around Lubbock, seven inches there. Oklahoma City had two to three inches. So yeah, it's that western flank that is snowing steadily through a good part of the eastern through southern Corn Belt uh, this morning. And again, you melt down that snow, generate from three to six inches, and you're going to come up with uh, about a half to three quarters of an inch of uh, water equivalent rainfall, if you will. And those grounds do not have any significant, if any, frost or freeze on the ground, so there's additional drought relief there. But that system is blowing off to the east and northeast. But as we talked about these bits and pieces of the Arctic air, there's that clipper system that Saskatchewan Screamer will drop through the upper Midwest, northern part of the Corn Belt. New moisture there. There'll be another system over the weekend out of Nebraska through the central Corn Belt locales, uh, maybe Sunday, Monday, uh, Illinois. Indiana and Ohio with some ice that are accumulating snow. The cold air gets a little farther south and we'll just kind of let these things kind of ripple on by that by the middle to late parts of the week. Once again, we introduce some snow as far south as Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Missouri, uh, parts of the mid and lower Mississippi Valley and south of the Ohio as well. And they're mopping up out of eastern Texas again, my friend. They were hit with a more severe weather into southwestern Louisiana uh, late yesterday and some of those severe storms are moving through the Gulf Coast areas of uh, Georgia and the Florida Panhandle. So from one part of the country or another, whether it's severe weather down south or um, snow and cold for the upper Midwest, it continues to be a very busy and increasingly kind of hyperactive uh, conclusion to January and a good part of February over many areas of the country, especially centered on the Plains and Corn Belt. And, you know, Greg, you said hyperactive, and I think that's a great way to talk about this month's weather. We saw thunderstorms and tornadoes in Iowa two, three weeks ago. You mentioned the severe risk along the southeast part of the country. Is there any chance the next week or two that severe storms could push their way farther north into the Corn Belt again? I uh, don't see that happening uh, once we get locked into this Arctic air here. And I think it's going to be a multi-lockdown of uh, a change back to well below average in many areas of the Corn Belt. And in a cold wave weather pattern for the north and uh, northwestern reaches at the onset here, no way we're going to be able to get any severe weather going. We may moderate the cold from time to time, but what we will do is begin to bring that snow cover and snowpack much farther to the south. It's been pretty much absent in many eastern and southern areas. And I think with time, we should be able to include those southern 
northern areas of the winter wheat belt, uh, the southern corn belt down past the Ohio as well. So kind of delayed in arriving. Uh, winter appears to want to be returning here early and often, if you will, over the remainder of the corn belt and parts of the southern plains. Good news from a moisture standpoint. And maybe not necessarily great news with livestock operations in mind. That is true, folks. You can hear Greg's forecast each week on This Week in Agribusiness. Greg Solier, thanks for joining us today. Anytime, my friend. And folks, tune in tomorrow to AOA. We'll talk about a new lawsuit against the Biden administration, this time over the listing of the lesser prairie chicken as endangered. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. And each month, we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Are you heading to NCBA in New Orleans? On Thursday, February 2nd, stop by the Christian Hansen booth, number 1639, for some exciting live radio. I'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Christian Hansen booth. That's number 1639 from 9 to 10 a.m. on Thursday. On Friday, stop by the Learning Lounge. At 1130, I'll be facilitating Christian Hansen's panel discussion on the benefits from the daily consumption of probiotics in beef cattle. We'll see you in New Orleans. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.